morning. Uh, we're going to be reading from First Thessalonians, and it's chapter, is it chapter 5? Chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. Starting in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this and brothers in all our distress and affliction we've been com comforted about you through your faith for now, now we live standing fast in the, Lord, in the Lord for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our, before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound and abound in one another and for all as we do for you so that he may, he may start blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the Lord. Um, having left off last episode, last episode of Cliffhanger, you know, Paul, just to bring you up to speed here, Paul's been saying how after being kind of forced, forced out of Thessalonica, um, he had wanted to spend more time with, the, with those believers there, but the persecution and the opposition was such that he had to get out of Dodge really quickly. And then subsequently, having made all kinds of plans for a return visit, plans that kept getting foiled, and then when he could bear it no longer, Paul finally sends Timothy uh, to Thessalonica, to these believers, to learn about their faith, to see whether they were still, still standing, as it were, um, even though they were being pummeled by the persecution from their own townspeople and from the tempter. Paul's desperate to know how they're doing. And sometimes, as, sometimes as you hangers can be, I don't know, I don't know how to put um, manufactured. Um, they're manufactured. I've told you before, a TV show that, that our family likes to watch called Mountain Men. And uh, likes to watch is probably a bit too, too, too strong. We tolerate it, rate it. And uh, one of the reasons we just tolerate it is, is because just, just before every commercial break, you know, the drama heightens even when it doesn't need to. You know, the music increases in tension and tension involved. You can tell something bad is about to happen. And uh, the narrator assures us that if this, this bad thing does happen, it could put the person's whole season in jeopardy. Indeed, their lives are basically on the line. And then the camera cuts away quickly the dude's foot starts slipping on some rocks and then you have to endure you know eight advertisements and then when it comes back the camera comes back and the guy's totally fine you know it was just a couple of, lo of loose rocks if, if he knew that we were getting all upset about that he'd be like it, it, it was it was nothing so he was never in any real danger on the other hand when Paul says in verse 5, when I could bear it, bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that some, somehow the tempter had you and our labor would be in vain. When he says that, that's not just a guy who's pretending to be fearful. He, he's actually describing a very real and present danger. danger something that he's desperate to be reassured about. And you have to believe that the space that is represented kind of between verses 5 and 6, which represents the time that's elapsed between the time that he has sent Timothy to the Thessalonians and Timothy's return, that time there between verses 5 and 6, that was for the Apostle, Apostle Paul real cliffhanger. It, that space likely was months of nail-biting suspense. Consider, so you should consider yourself lucky, I think, that you only had to wait a week to find out what's going to happen. 
to find out what's become of these new believers in Thessalonica. And Timothy's back now, come to verse 6, so we get to hear finally about how things are going. It turns out that there's actually a lot to glean from this passage today about fellowship, about living presence of God and, and in the presence of people. Um, there's a lot to learn about what it means to truly live, how to have a re real genuine heart for people, how to pray for people, and so much more. It, it, it would be really, and it has been difficult for me, to boil this, all of this material down into a, a single big proposition that I want to get across. But, but I suppose that if you pressed me, I could boil it down to three words. Three words. Faith, hope, and love. And we're going to key into the hope part, uh, likely at the very end. For the most part, text has us thinking about and focusing on faith and love. And so this morning, I'd like to work through the passage under three headings. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down as, as main points, main points, some thoughts underneath. Number one, the report concerning faith and love. Number two, two rejoicing in faith and love. And number th three, the request concerning faith and love. Faith and love. The report rejoicing and the request all in in relationship to faith and love let's look first at the report concerning faith and love and timothy's back now so i'm not going to keep you in suspense any longer here's the bo bottom line it's good news it's he's he comes back with good news how good is the news? You might be thinking, you might think I'm setting you up for a, a joke, but I'm not. I'm actually just setting you, setting you up the little tidbit that the words in verse 6, which are translated, has brought us the good news, is actually one word in the original language, and it's the same word as the gospel. And this is noteworthy, I think, because in the New Testament, that word, gospel, re refers almost exclusively to the gospel of God. You know, the good news of what Jesus has done for sin for sinners, his, his life and life and his and his resurrection. It's exceedingly rare to have to have that special word used in a non-technical sense, if I could put it that way. Um, to, to, find, to, find, to speak just generally about some good news, which is what we have it he, here in this passage. And I think that the specialness of all that indicates that this report is very, very good news indeed. And it's neat to think, to think that, that Timothy was sent to the Thessalonians as a co-worker, co the gospel, a co-worker with God even, as uh, verse 2 puts it, amazingly, Timothy goes to Thessalonica with the gospel of Christ, and now he's returning with a gospel about how the faith and the love of these new believers has, has been preserved in spite of all of the secular and Satan opposition that they faced right, right from the gate. When, Timi when Timothy gets out of the, the chariot, uber back in corinth on his return trip you know the the apostle paul isn't there waiting in you know breath and 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 shifting his weight back and forth uh, from one from one foot to the other to simply learn what the weather was like up north on the coast he, he's he's not even interested in how the thessalon is doing just in general He's very specific. He has very specific concerns, and he wants a status update on two things in particular. He wants to know about their faith and their love. That's what's of utmost importance to him. That's what that's at right at at the dead of his concern. How is it with with their faith and their love? By their faith, I mean, do they still believe? 
are they still staking their lives not on what they they can see, not not on things things that they've surprised, but are they staking their lives still on things that they've heard with their ears, namely the word of God, the word of the word of truth, the testimony about what Jesus has done on the cross to reconcile them to God, uh, uh, the testimony of glorious resurrection, the fact that he now still lives. Is the spirit, Paul wants to know, is the Holy Spirit still attending the word with power and conviction, such that their, their faith is, is putting down even deeper roots into the soil? Or, on the other hand, are they wavering? Are the, has the mockery and the, you know, the derision that they've been on the receiving end of, has that started to get get to them? You know, the, the lost job opportunities, the disownings from, from family. Have, have these very real and very visible things worked to erode their confidence in unseen things? That's what Paul wants to know. And secondly, what is the nature of and in, in the status of their life? That might seem like a, a very strange thing to key in on in a status report. How's, how's their life? You know, aren't we talking about the spiritual state of the Thessalonians? You might be wondering uh, right now, along with Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? I mean, isn't, isn't that just kind of like a, like a second emotion? Well, it turns out that, that, that love lies at the very center of what it means to be a Christian. So much so that, that, that love actually is the summary of everything. everything. It's, it's what all of the law and all of the prophets hang on. Love for God and love for others. Love is so central that, that it can function as a sort of spiritual barometer. And by that I mean that what is absent from a person, there are there's su sufficient bones there to call into question whether their their profession of faith is actually genuine. On the other hand, when true love is present, that that's very good indication that such a person has first experienced the love of God in Christ. That. Christ's love has been been put out into their hearts. Hearts now they are um, giving it out just like they've received. So it is very important. It is very indicative, and Paul's very interested in hearing about both the faith and the love of the Thessalonians. But as soon as I say that, there's a danger in me even pulling it pulling it out like that because. You might think that those are two very distinct and separate things to be treated separately. I want to warn you against thinking that. that. Think of them instead as, as totally related and in, interdependent. You'll see these partners, faith and love, holding hands throughout this whole passage and indeed through all of these letters. So be uh, a, a mistake to try to pull them apart. But let's see, how, see how, how are the Thess doing in terms of their faith? I guess the bottom line is found in verse 8. Here's the good news. They're standing fast in the Lord. They're standing fast in the Lord. This calls to mind an, an illustration that I gave you last week, if you were here, about, about Pinky, uh, which is my son, my son, John Pet sapling his white pine sapling that we recently planted and i told you that i had, I had been concerned that you know the the discharge from my lawn, lawn tractor was going to wreak havoc havoc to plant I, I was afraid that driving past it i was going to blow the whole thing over and paul had a, a very similar concern in verse three that these baby christians would be moved by the winds of affliction that they were enduring. Well, I think I can upgrade my illustration a little bit because on th Thursday afternoon, I think I may have experienced a tornado in Geneseo. 
and it officially hasn't been ruled a tornado yet, but it it was for as for all and purposes. I was sitting at at a stop, you know, the the one beside Burger King, uh, when hundred mile winds they say rocked my car. You know, a sideways rain and debris, sheared trees, trees was flying past me. It was it was pandemonium. It was even more pandemonium than a Glenless worship service at Grace Baptist Church. Well, thankfully, the worst was over in just a couple of minutes. And, and when it was, I turned right onto the main drag there. And, you know, I had to dodge down power lines and, and tree limbs and stuff. And then as I was driving slowly down the road, I looked and to my right was Hempel Hill Cemetery. And there, there was a massive, mature tree that was com completely on its side, having been totally up. Totally up. I mean, the whole root system was sideways. And that must have just happened, happened a minute earlier. So um, I was thinking about Pinky in that moment. And I was wondering what it would be like if, if my family lived in Geneseo. If instead of driving back to Wayland, I only have to drive a, drive a few blocks. And I imagined the horror of, of thinking about all, of, about all of the possible damage. You know, that if the wind had the power to do that, to, to topple a 50 or 100-year-old tree with, with a root system, how could one like Pinky ever stand a, ch stand a chance? Now, if you followed uh, these meandering through my wacky imagination, then I think that you can understand some of the Apostle Paul's concern. Knowing that the church that he has only recently planted is experiencing such strong and violent opposition coming at them 100 miles an hour from, from their, their town fellow Thessalonians and ultimately coming at them from the tempter himself. I think you can understand how on pins and needles would be as Timothy wound his way back to the to the neighborhood to check on them on them and then if you can feel that I I think you can feel something of of sheer relief his utter joy when Timothy comes back and reports that they in fact are are st still that they're actually they're actually firmly in the faith that they are standing fast in Christ that they are they are unmoved what, what joy. How wonderful. And what about their love? Well, Timothy reports in verse 6 that the Thessalonians always remember the missionaries with fond memories, kindly, and they long to see them, just as Paul and Silas or Sylvanus longs to see them. So that, that, that's a foregone gone conclusion, I want to just remind you, okay? That's not, not just like a friendly, friendly thing that you say. That's not a foregone conclusion. As we've talked about in previous weeks, the alternative was maybe more like, more likely, perfectly reasonable. And what I mean is that the Thessalonians might have been convinced by the that, that Paul and his associates had flown the coop as soon as the heat got turned up. And the Thessalonian, Thessalonian might just as easily have begun to, to assume the attitude of good riddance. You know, we, you know, we didn't have any problems until you guys came to town. They noted that, that, that Paul's presence, presence in, in the, seemed to be the point where they st everyone started turning against them. And I think that most of you know from having been part of, of churches, perhaps, for, in some cases, many, many, many years. I think you know that hostility and bitterness and separation are just as possible outcomes as, as love is. And knowing that, what a relief and what a joy to know that the fond feelings that the Thessalonians have whenever they remember Paul and Silas and the rest, and the, the love and the lo longing that Paul and Silas have towards them 
is totally reciprocated. That there's a, there's a mutual feeling. There's a reciprocity in terms of their love for one another. What a, what a relief. You have it. There, that's the, the faith and love status report of the church in Thessalonica. And again, bottom line, by the grace of God, all systems are a go. But here's a question for you. Suppose a, a Timothy type was, was sent to our church. What would he report? Most certainly, Most certainly they report that their services are a little bit disordered. But mo most importantly, what would that person report about the state of our faith and love? And then what if his report was more personal? What if, what would be, be reported about the status of your faith and your love? Think about that for a minute. It's get, get in the season and it's, it's not just Father's Day, it's report card season and we look forward to that time in our, in our house. Judgment Day. What do you what do you in these particular subjects? Faith and love. What are the what's the comments? We always get a kick out of the comments off to the side side and options the teachers have picked from the drop down menu. It, is it, what's the on you? Is it faith unwavering despite many challenges? Is it love, love, undiminished, excelling? By may may those sorts of things be said about us. And all of this leads, I think, quite naturally to the next thing, which will be our second heading, heading, which is rejoicing in faith and love. Rejoicing in faith and love. And here we're asking, what are the results? of this gospel about the Thessalonians. How Paul and his associates respond? What does it mean for them? And there's a number of answers that, that the text gives, and all of them are kind of related. And all of them kind of demonstrate that the heart that Paul and others have, not just before God, but before God's people. And so and so there's lots to, to learn along these lines. If you Try to nurture love in your heart for other people. Well, pay attention. Pay attention. What's in Paul's letter? First, I want you to notice how this report brought comfort. That in verse seven, they were comforted by this report. In other words, they were relieved. Their their fears were assuaged. Their their all of their concerns were allayed. And more than that, they were, they were encouraged. Somehow, knowing about the steadfastness of the faith and love of these believers strengthened Paul and his gang. What they, what they were going through, faithfulness, actually strengthened Paul in his situation. Notice how he says that they were comforted. In the in the verse in the verse it's in all our distress and affliction, and I don't take that to mean just the the distress and the affliction of wondering how things are going with the Thessalonians. No, I think I think Paul and his associates are are also also ongoing opposition and persecution and affliction that they have to endure, that they are cur currently enduring even here in Corinth. And that hearing about the steadfastness of faith of other Christians in other contexts of persecution results in encouragement and strength for them to persevere in their trials. And this goes right, right along with, with what Paul wrote back in chapter 1, verse 7. Maybe that's still on the same page of your Bible. Maybe you can just glance over at chapter 1, verse 7. Where Paul says that the church, that church there in Thessalonica, had become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And now we're discovering they were an example to the Apostle Paul, Paul himself. 
that they are an encouragement to him in the midst of his own trials, that they are the source of strength for him as he faces ongoing opposition. And, and maybe, I don't, I don't know how that hits you. If you're like me, you think of the Apostle Paul as, as a superstar. Maybe you think of yourself as like one of these brand new Thessalonian believers. And you think, how, how can I, I, just to the faith, so, so faith even, how, how can I really be a blessing to, to other people? I need to, maybe in 10 or 20 years of, of faith under my belt. But no, these, these things happening here. These baby Christians are a source of strength for Paul himself, a comfort and encouragement to him. That means that you, even, even if you believe yourself to be an underdeveloped Christian, can be a source of tremendous blessing to even, to even the most seasoned believer. And, and, and friends, this is yet one reason why it's so important that we stay faithful and loving it's because others are watching and others depend on it. We're, we're meant to be an example, example and an encouragement to others. And what this means is that if you were to give in to your sin, if you were to cave under persecution, if you were to be enticed by the tempter, that, that likely wouldn't just mean the, the shipwreck of faith. That likely would mean harm for a host of other people, not least of which are your own children. But think of other believers who are counting on, on, your, on your continued faith as a means of strength for them. Another result is found in verse 8. And I hope you can see how related to, to what we've already talked about. This report doesn't just mean comfort for Paul. It, it represents life to him. He says this. Look, look there with me. For for now you live, if you or or since you are standing fast in the Lord, standing fast in the Lord. Okay, now we live. And you might be thinking, uh, that's isn't that a bit over the top, Paul? You know, you're being a, being a, a, a tad melodramatic. Paul, you sound more like a, a teenage girl than, than an apostle. Really? Now, now you can live? You, you would die? Your life over if you, if you covered that the Thessalonians had folded like a cheap suit? But as soon as we give words to those sorts of thoughts, I think it is to be immediately rebuked. Because Paul's statement and our objection, it really reveals radical, radically different conceptions of what the good life is, doesn't it? What constitutes a good life? What, 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 what would have to be in place for you to say, you know, no, I'm, I'm now, I'm, now I'm truly living. One way to get at this, I guess, would be to ask, you know, what calls forth in you your most effusive language, your, my, your most hyperbolic language? What makes you sound like a, a teen girl? And no offense to teenage girls, please. It's wonderful. Your, your enthusiasm, we love it. It's, it's wonderful. I'm asking other people, I'm asking all of us, what, what makes us that, that enthusiastic? Your, your travel plans? Your upcoming vacation? Your, your new toy? Your new wheels? Now, we, we know enough, enough not to use explicit words, but our actions, our language, all of that reflects our belief that having that thing or, do, or doing activity, that's truly living. That, that's what life is all about. But I want you to understand and see the contrast here. 
The Apostle Paul's life is completely bound up in people. And in particular, in their spiritual well-being. Paul's conception of the good life is sharing the gospel of, of grace with people. And seeing, seeing the God transform them. And then to see them standing firm and growing in holiness. People are Paul's hope and glory. His pride and joy. And in this way, I think, I think you know, that the Apostle, Apostle Paul humbles the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, as you know, was consumed with our interests and our needs. That, that, that the Lord um, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that we could be established in the faith. And now how he lives for us. Indeed, he intercedes for us. Our, our growth, our progress, our sanctification, our glorification is, is life for Christ. So now, so now who sounds like the Christian? Let, let me put it to you this way. I'll, I'll provide the caption, okay? You provide the photo in your mind. Your mind. Here's the caption. This is the life. This is the life. What, what's, what's the picture that pops into your head? If the picture that pops into our heads is, is you know, has a, a sunny beach in the, in the back and, you know, hot dog legs in the foreground, then may, may I kindly suggest that you're crazy? That caption, the caption is the life belongs on a photo of any given believer remaining steadfast under trial, who is abounding in love, who is growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ. That's the life. And I think Paul in these verses sounds a whole lot like John, his third epistle. I had this verse just kind of ringing in my ears as I've been studying this passage. You know that verse where John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are wa walking in truth. That's, that's the life. And the rejoicing continues in verse 9. But, but here it takes the shape of thanksgiving. Or at least, at least attempt what we discover in this verse. Verse 9 is another one of the Bible's rhetorical questions. Um, Paul says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel forsake before our God. A couple of uh, important assumptions here that I think we need to tease out. We need to ensure that we don't assume them or that we do assume them. But we want to be clear thinking about what, what our assumptions are. And the, and the first assumption is that we owe God our thanks. We owe God our thanks. I'm, I'm currently reading uh, this cheeky little book called Talk to the Hand, uh, which uh, complains about the decline of good manners in our modern age. And the author of that little book points out that a simple act of, say, holding the door for some creates an obligation, and it's an obligation that can be swiftly discharged or canceled as, as soon as that one says thank you. But of course, as you know, thank yous are, are often not forth. And so we become morally indignant about the, the thanks is due for even something as simple as holding a door for someone. That is actually the correct way to think about thanks. So when you're sitting down to eat lunch in a little bit here, don't mock your father when he asks you with, with somewhat old-fashioned language, language to return thanks. That's proper language. That's, that's actually the right, it's the language of verse 9. Thanks must be returned to God for all he has done just in general. But in this, for the wonderful work that he is doing in fellow believers in particular, thanks is due him. That's assumption number one. Assumption number two 
and this is the basis for the rhetorical question, it is it is impossible ever to stay current with the Lord in terms of the thanks that we owe. I was thrilled that the author of that book that I'm reading brought up something that I, I'd been, I had thought about when I was a kid and I've laughed to myself about it over the year, years. Um, it was prompted back, back, way back, someone did something really nice for me, so I wrote them a thank you note, but then, but then me a thank you note back, you know, back and I would basically say thank you for the thank you. I don't get much, many, many thank yous, so thank you. And, it, and it, I just remember like having my mind blown, um, getting swallowed up in this infinite regress, like where, where does this thing end? Now do I need to say thank you for thank you for the for the thank you for the th I don't know. You know because for certain people it, it's a bit, bit uncomfortable to have outstanding debt of debt of But when it comes to the thanks that we owe God there's absolutely absolutely no possibility that we can stay current. His love simply has been too lavish. And, and, and even if we even if we understand understand the scale of all of his innumerable blessings, we, we even if we could get our minds around that, we, we still wouldn't have adequate words to express our gratitude. Now, of course, of course, doesn't mean that we shouldn't ever try. A much greater tragedy, I think, than the decline of manners in our day is our prayerlessness, our thanklessness. When God has been so kind to us, just in general. But again, let me remind you of the specific thing that Paul is thankful for, here, which is God's work in fellow believers. How often is that coming across your lips? Thanks to God for that. And, and Paul's saying that those kinds of thanks, our thanks, thanks, even if you narrow it down to just the blessings of what God is doing in our lives and lives of other people, even it would be way too much. There's way too much that he's doing, way too many blessings that he's giving for us to even get on top of that stuff. So think about that next time you think that that God's work, progress in other person's life has stalled out you you don't have any idea you don't even have like the smallest little handle on all all that god is doing in that person's life thank him for it this is a, this is a reminder and and the fact you see what's going on here we see faithfulness and love in another believer and that's that's causing to give thanks to god to god and that's just a reminder that whenever we find a, a Christian standing, standing firm in the faith and demonstrating love, there's ultimately only one explanation for that. And that is that a sovereign God has been graciously working and blessing. In the, in the final analysis, you know, it's not down to human effort and activity, even though, you know, starting in chapter four, we're going to, see that there's a lot of activity that's required on our part. But, but uh, what I'm saying is that ulti ultimately all of this down to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, all of the, the praise and the glory and the thanks are due him. him. Well, there's lots more that we could say here, but maybe say some of it under our last heading, which we'll turn to now. That is the quests concerning faith and love. Just told the Thessalonians that he constantly prays for them, prays for them, that he thanks God for them night and day, and not he he doesn't talk just about the frequency, but also the the intensity of prayers. He he prays he prays early for them, and now in verses eleven to thirteen, he's going he's going to demonstrate them what that, that kind of a prayer for them looks like. Okay, so, so this is going to be, be a good model prayer for us to know, to help us to know, because um, sometimes we, we, don't, or we don't know how to pray for other people or, or what to, 
what to request or how to thank God for them. And so this is a great model for us as we, as we seek to eat on behalf of others concerning their faith and love. But even, even the path of, of this is instructive. Of, of the flow of, of um, what Paul is doing in, in this passage is instructive. Um, there's a great little book on all of the different prayers of in Paul contained in Paul's letters. letters and uh, that, that book is called a, a Call Spiritual Reformation. And the author, Don Carson, writes that this is how, this is how we really encourage someone. If you want to really encourage someone in a biblical way, do it according to that. Don't do, don't do it with flattery, you know, where we kind of just directly praise people for their independent faithfulness. But, but encourage a brother or a sister by praise, praising God for his work in them in their presence. And Carson wonders aloud at this possibility. He writes this, quote, How much would our churches be transformed if each of us made a practice to, to thank God and then, then to tell those others what it is about them that we thank God for. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the encouragement, the, the God-centered encouragement that would come as a result of that? So, so here's, here's how you pray along those lines if that's something that you want to pursue. And... Uh, uh, let me just say the. Let me just draw your attention to these things briefly. This will be inadequate, and so um, I'm encouraging you to go back through this and and pray according to the model in verses seven to thirteen. But let me just get you started. Consider first the address. So who who are we praying to? Let's not just just let's not just skip over that. Let me ask you this. Are we praying to God the, God the Father, or, or do we address our prayers to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer, as we see in verse 11, is, is yes. When you, when you consider the, the long-established practice in the Old Testament, which was to address prayer to God, the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, and then you're how early Christians were praying both to God the Father and to the Lord Jesus, putting them right beside each other, and then using a singular verb to agree with those two persons. When you consider all of that, then you understand how powerful a state this is about the divinity of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is not God, if this isn't true, then, then this utter blasphemy to me. But even this early church, and we've, we've said, said that this is maybe one of the earliest letters um, written. This is happening very, very early on, that prayers are being addressed to God and to the Lord Jesus. Then think, I, I want to go back and just think, think about this, this phrase for God. And it's, it's a phrase that's repeated a number of times, even in our passage, but certainly in the whole life, and then certainly throughout Scripture. And I'm talking about this phrase, phrase that says, our Father. God, our Father. And this is how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art, art in heaven. And I don't want that to be lost on you, especially on father father's day we don't generally you know follow the christian church calendar or whatever uh, or certainly the hallmark calendar we typically don't do special sermons for these sorts of events and and all of you guys all you men understand that no, no problem but but here let me give you this little tidbit to talk about to think about think about god as your father. How important is that when you are in prayer? To know that you're coming to one who has that sort of a disposition towards you. you that of a father. And you know fathers for the most part. You know that a father is going to bend over backwards to give 
good gifts to his children. The, the Bible even says, Jesus even says, even if you've had, if you've had a not-so-great father, you understand that this is how fathers are. Even if you've got a bad dad, you know, even from, from time to time, he, he brought you a, a scratch-off ticket or something, right? He, he, he desires to give good gifts to you, even if, even if it's a ham-handed way. If, if, you, if you ask your father for, um, for an egg, is he going to give you, give you a one? No, you understand that fathers love their children and, and, and just work themselves to the bone in order to provide for their children. If that's the case with our earthly fathers, how much more so with our heavenly father? Friends, you're coming to a God, yes, who's all-powerful, has full control of the whole universe, but you're coming to him as one who loves you tenderly and who delights to give, give you good gifts. Ask for them. You ask. You don't have because you don't ask. We address our Heavenly Father. But, but then let's look at the, the requests. Let's look very, very, the requests. And, and let me just boil it down to two things. He prays about love, and he prays about faith. He's, he, he, he's interceding for the Thessalonians according to their, their need for, for love, but also in terms of, of their faith. And just listen to the, the language about love. He's, he says here, Now may God, our God and Father, Father himself and our Jesus, direct our way to you. And that word, direct our way, that's the same kind of word that's, that's used in, in that proverb that, that you love, right? That it says that he will direct your path. It's the, it's the idea of like, move, make straight your path. He's going to remove obstacles. And here, Paul is sincerely praying that sovereign, powerful God would make straight his path to the Thessalonians. A, a path that, as we've seen, has has been there's been lots of obstacles in the way uh, put there by Satan, um, one who's even more powerful than Satan, and he's the one that we appeal to 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 migrate our paths so that we can come to you and make maybe the Lord and and that has everything to do with, with love, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Do you see throughout these verses how intent Paul is to, to be, be with these face to face? That's because it, it, being together in proximity, right, right, to, right together, uh, is an, uh, is an, it's, a, it's a crucial element for the expression of our love. I hope one of the many lessons that we learned having gone through a COVID pandemic is that the church cannot be separated for long. I don't know if you've sensed this, felt this. Uh, uh, I, I, I you did actually because you commented on this even from very early on. How torturous it was for for to be separated from from brothers. You you can't have a meaningful relation relationship with the prize virtually for any extended period of time. These things have to take place face to face. This is what love, love wears, ultimately. And, and this is what Paul is earnestly praying for, praying for you. And then more directly to the point, here's, here's the request. May the Lord make you increase and abound love for one another, another and for all. See, this, this is wonderful because, wonderful because you look and, and you see the status report and love, their love was good. Everything was great. But, but there to be a sort of holy dissatisfaction with the status quo as it, as it concerns our love. What we really need and what the Lord really needs to work, in, work into us it love in greater and greater greater degrees, such that it is bubbling up and overflowing. 
it's increasing, but it's also abounding, super abounding. Pursue love. There, there's not a moment in your Christian life where you can say, be said to have arrived in this most fundamental area and expression of our Christianity. Pray, and pray, let's pray for each other that we would increase and abound in love. And where this love needs to be direct, directed. Yes, love for one another. And I think it's proper that that would come first. Galatians 6 says, seek to do good to um, all people, you know, starting especially the household, household of faith. But don't forget about the, forget about the all people. And that's where the prayer goes next. Abound in love for one another and for all. And, and that's a point for reflection, isn't it? You might, you might think pretty well loving your brother and sister in Christ. That you're doing quite well in terms of love, love in the context of, of the local church. But how are you doing in terms of love for all people? How are you doing in terms of love for, for enemies even? Because you'll agree, I think, that enemies are included in, in all people. The people that are persecuting you. Are you increasing and abounding in love to them? This is why prayer, prayer, prayer for us all along these lines is so important. Verse 13, here's a prayer as it relates to faith, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the end of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And, and I love that. Um, it's so characteristic of Paul in this letter to point us towards the end, the consummation of all things when the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus comes with his holy ones and for his holy ones. And you see what God is doing right now is fitting us to be part of that holy assembly and what that looks like in, in real time, time for us to be established in faith, unwavering and increasing in, in love towards each other and everyone. God would be working holiness in us, that he'd be rooting out our sin and, re and replace fruits of righteousness so that when we stand before him on that great, great day, that we will be blameless at his coming. So friends, I, I encourage you to, to pray that for yourself, but most importantly, pray, pray that for each other. Let's pray that for each other and, and let us not um, um, up Give, giving thanks to God for all of the wonderful work that he's doing in each other. This way we will be prepared for the coming of Christ.